All right. Well, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 25. If you haven't noticed, we have having some technical difficulties, so you're going to have to actually use your Bible because you won't get any scripture up there. That might be confusing if it comes up a little bit later. So follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. Those are black Bibles you can have if you don't own one or just use while you're here this morning. And as Mike alluded to in his message or in his prayer this morning or announcement, I think it was a prayer maybe, we're going to be looking at a section of scripture that is a little more, a little more encouraging than last week. If you were here last week, we talked a lot about judgment, but as I said, with judgment comes God's mercy and God's merciful to his people and to those who would receive his son as their Lord and Savior. And so we're going to look at that this morning in a message entitled, Waiting for the Return of the Lord. Waiting on things, I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting. Waiting in line at a restaurant is not the funnest thing to do. You know, you think you can speed up the people that are eating by like staring at them. I don't know if any of you, I don't do that, but maybe some of you do like staring at that table like, hey, you guys are done. You can leave or going up to the hostess and kind of asking how long it's going to be or how many of you like keep looking at that little beeper pager thing they give you thinking that's going to help speed up the, an open chair, open table. But waiting isn't fun. I know as a little kid, you're always told to wait, you know, wait for this, wait for that. And obviously, even as adults, we can do that. As a husband, sometimes you have to wait on your wife. I never have to because she's always ready before me. So, but maybe some of you have that problem, like waiting for your wife and you're thinking, hey, if I walk behind her, as she's getting ready. That's going to speed her up as she sees me. Or if I walk behind her and look at my watch, that will also speed her up. Does anybody do that? You don't, I wouldn't raise your hand, especially if your wife's here this morning. But maybe you do that, thinking that's going to speed them up. And even as a believer, we're often told to wait on the Lord. And you're like, oh. Well, we're going to look at that because waiting is actually something that we're called to do over and over again in Scripture. And in this morning, as I mentioned, Isaiah is going to mention that as well. But usually when you wait, it's always worth it, Right? It's always worth waiting, especially, well, it depends on what you're waiting for, I guess. But let's look at the text this morning, and we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 25, and this is a continuation from chapter 24, where Isaiah began to talk about final judgment, which I believe that he's talking about in verses, or chapters 24 through 27. And so in in chapter 25, he's going to continue on this theme except this is a a better side for him to look at. He's really trying to encourage his people here in chapter 25. And look at what he says. You can tell by the very beginning as he starts off. So we're going to read through the 12 verses and then come back and talk about them individually. So he says this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness, For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. 
like a heat and drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silence. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples in this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow or marrow, a refined and aged wine. And on the mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited for, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on the mountain, or on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. So let's see, what is Isaiah talking about here? Well, go back to the very beginning. Let's, let's see what I, Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is praising God. This is actually a song of praise or a word of praise coming from Isaiah. And Isaiah here is speaking on behalf of his people, the nation Israel. He's representing God to Israel, and in a sense, now he's representing Israel to God. So he's like envisioning him standing before his people, praising God for something here. And he's not only praising God, he's rejoicing in God, and he's rejoicing in the fact that he knows God. Look again at verse 1 real quick. He says, O Lord, you are my God, and I exalt you, and I will give thanks to your name. So Isaiah is rejoicing that he knows God, that he has a personal relationship with God. God is his personal God, and God is not only that, he's the God of all of his people, of his nation. I mean, how many of you are, are comforted by the fact that maybe your family knows the Lord, or your children know the Lord, or your parents know the Lord? That brings great comfort, and I think Isaiah, as being a representative of his nation, feels that love and that comfort that, hey, we know the Lord, and he's going to say why he's so excited about it in a few moments. And so he's praising God. When you hear or when you see in Scripture that it's talking about exalting God, basically it's boasting about the Lord or bragging about God or lifting up God's name or how awesome God is or how awesome you are, and we have that in our worship songs. But praising is also giving thanks to God. Thanking God for who he is and thanking God for what he's done. So this is what Isaiah is doing. He's exalting God and he's giving thanks to God. And so why is he doing that? And that's explained in the following verses. Actually, at the end of verse 1, look at what he says in your Bible. He says, so after he says he exalts the Lord and he gives thanks to the Lord, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So why is Isaiah praising God? Well, God has worked wonders, he tells us here. And these wonders are planned from long ago. It's something that God has already planned out or laid down as a foundation of the way God is going to work. And Isaiah is praising him for that. Because that means that nothing could hinder what God is going to do. This is what Isaiah is telling us or reminding his people of. 
Nothing's going to surprise or foil the Lord's plans for his redemptive purpose for his people. The Lord has worked and the Lord is working his plan out. And so Isaiah is praising him for that at the very beginning. He says, you've worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. How many of us can say that we've planned something out and it goes according to plan? Not very often. But Isaiah is saying God does it. God has a plan and it works out perfectly. And he's faithful to complete it. He starts his praise off like that. So what exactly is the plan of God that Isaiah is talking about? Well, let's look at verses 2 through 5, and we'll get a few points here. Oh, we're getting notes. Okay, yeah, we're going to get notes. So the first one that he's going to praise God for is found in verses 2 and 3, and it's God's wondrous work of victory over this world. Let's read verses 2 and 3 again so you can see this. He says, For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. If you remember from last week, he's talking about a city. He's talking about the city of the world in general. He's generalizing here and using it as just one big city. So God, he's telling that God is going to destroy this world, as we learned last week. And Isaiah's praising God for that, and we'll see why in a few moments. And he goes on, he says, Therefore a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. God is going to humble and destroy all human pride and oppression, especially, as we'll learn in a few moments, against God's people. Right? God's going to humble that. And so Isaiah's praising him for that. If you remember, Israel is, we tend to forget, Israel is suffering persecution right now or suffering from intended persecution by the nations around them in our text this morning, or at least when this was written. And so Isaiah's looking forward to a time when that will no longer happen, and he's praising God for that, because God's going to humble the works of human pride and oppression. And so Isaiah's praising God for that. So not only is he praising God for his wonderful works of victory over this world, but he also praises God for the wonderful work of saving his people. Look at verses 4 through 5, because this is what he says in these verses. So after he talks about this destruction, he says, For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, from beneath the ruthless, from the breath of the ruthless, is like a storm against a wall, like a heat, a drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens, like the heat by the shadow of the cloud, the song of the ruthless is silence. So he's talking about this oppressor who is oppressing the nation Israel at this time. And, God, and he's saying, God, you're protecting us from that. You're a shelter. You're like a shade in the heat that protects us from the ruthless nations around him. So you know he's talking about physical oppression. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. And again, proof from this is again in those verses that I just read. He says the breath of the ruthless the uproar of aliens or strangers, and the songs of the ruthless is silence. So there's people who are coming against the nation of Israel, and they're trying to attack them, but God is ultimately going to protect them. And this is what Isaiah is praising God for, because he knows what God is going to do. God is going to work his plan for protection, and part of that plan is God protecting his people from physical oppression. Now, does that mean that, hey, God's people never suffer oppression? 
Now, we live in a, in a great country, and we have religious freedoms at this moment, and we don't suffer persecution, but that can't be said for our brothers and sisters around this world. So don't think, well, does that mean that we'll never be oppressed to some extent? And I pray that we never will. A matter of fact, Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 11, he says that persecution is part of the Christian life, and we tend to forget that. He said, blessed are you when man casts insult at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. So he, Jesus recognizes that there's going to be persecution against the Christian church universal. Just like Isaiah is, is not saying that it's not going to happen, but God ultimately protects his people. And Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, reminds us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution is a real thing, and maybe we haven't experienced it, and as I say all the time, I pray that we never do in this country. But we must not forget that Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So believers may suffer individual persecution, even unto death sometimes. That's the reality. But the universal church will never be defeated. God will always have a remnant in this world. It's like Christians may lose battles here and there, but ultimately we will not lose the war. And this is what Isaiah is praising God for, that this ultimately there's going to be final victory as we see as we move forward. And that's exactly what he mentions in verses 6 through 8. So Isaiah is praising God for who he is and what he's going to do. He's praising God that he's ultimately going to deliver his people. And this is what God is going to deliver them to. And look at this in verses 6 through 8. We'll go through these verse by verse. So God promises rewards at his return, when the Lord returns. Look at what he says, starting in verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. What is he talking about here? Well, if you know, at the second coming of the Lord, there is something called the marriage supper of the land, of the Lamb. Jesus alludes to this in a number of, or Scripture alludes to this in a number of places. And first, I want to show you in one section in Luke chapter 22. Turn there with me if you'd like. When Jesus was instituting communion with his, he's having the last supper with the believers, with his disciples on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion, look at what he says. There's something that he says here that alludes to this coming celebration. So in Luke 22, go to verse 15. And Jesus says this, And he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so there's an illusion by Jesus that there's a, a feast or something coming in the future when the kingdom of God finally comes. And that kingdom of God finally comes when Jesus returns for a second time. Now, this is described in the book of Revelation. So turn to Revelation chapter 19, and I keep a finger here as we in this section of Revelation because we're going to turn back to this a number of times. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 7, at the return of Jesus, 
the Apostle John writes this. So after Jesus has returned and there's celebration and praising, he says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So this is the description of what Isaiah foresees here in Isaiah 25 of this great feast. Now go back to Isaiah and look at this feast. So for those of you who maybe like to drink wine with dinner, there looks like there's going to be wine in heaven for you. And for those of you that don't drink, like myself, what looks like we're going to be drinking of some sort, or this could just be a way of God saying there's got great celebration in heaven. Look at it. He says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. It's a banquet of aged wine. So, you know, it's old wine, meaning it's probably really good. And choice pieces of marrow or meat. So if those of you that maybe don't eat meat, you're going to be a, a meat eater in heaven, maybe. A good steak, right? You can see what he's saying. It's just going to be a great big party. Uh, me and my son Jonathan have been watching Lord of the Rings lately. And every time there's a victory of some sort, they're like celebrating in these taverns. You know, you just see this meat everywhere and they're drinking and they're just celebrating. And I think this is the picture that Isaiah is trying to. It's going to be a great celebration. Why? Because the king has returned, and they're celebrating the return of the king, and that's what Isaiah is telling us here. This is going to be a great time, a great celebration, and it's marked by the marriage supper of the land. It's the celebration and inauguration of the true king of the world. When Christ returns, we're going to be celebrating and greeting him and partying for all eternity because God and who he is and what he's done. And so this is the picture that Isaiah is painting here in Isaiah 25. But that's not the only thing that Isaiah is praising God for all these rewards that are going to happen at the time of the Lord's return. Look at verses 7 and 8 as he continues in this section. He says this, and on this mountain, so he says on this mountain, the same mountain that they're celebrating, he says, he, meaning the Lord, will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. And what is that? He will swallow up death for all time. Let's stop right there. So the removal, so this promised reward at his return is the removal of the curse of death. At the Lord's coming, death is finally going to be defeated for all eternity. No longer will we, as a people of God, see death, nor will we see the threat of death, that veil, that thing that scares all of humanity, death will be gone. It's going to be abolished. And this happens when, at the return of our Lord, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you, you know or may not be familiar, but I'll tell you, is the time when the Lord is coming back and all believers are resurrected, and they obtain new bodies. Look at what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start in verse 50. And so the Apostle Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, speaking of death. 
but we will be changed. When? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. So this is the point. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is when death is swallowed up. At when Christ returns, all believers are resurrected. Those who are alive will be just resurrected instantly. Those who have already died, their bodies will raise from the dead and be changed and put on immortality. And that's when death is done away with. It no longer will exist. And Revelation 20, remember I told you to keep your finger there, so go back. Verses 11 through 14 gives us a vivid description of the death of death. Look at this. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 14. Again, speaking of the return of Christ, right after the return of Christ, Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found there for them. And I saw the dead, as we mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from these things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, everyone according to their deeds. And then look at this in verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. This is what Isaiah is talking about when Christ will come and destroy death, will swallow up death, when it is thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. So the removal of the fear of death and actual death will no longer exist. And when does this happen? At the return of the Lord, at the second coming. So God's promised rewards at His return are the marriage supper of the Lamb, actually celebrating God's coming. Secondly, the removal of the curse of death. And look at, going back to our text in Isaiah chapter 8, look at the second sentence there. So not only will he swallow up death for all time, the Lord will, look at this, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. Where have you heard this before? In the book of Revelation, which is why I told you to keep your finger there. Go back to Revelation chapter 21. This time, look at verses 1 through 5 in Revelation 21. So this is the removal of grief, sadness, despair, all the things that make us sad in life. Isaiah is saying that the Lord's going to come, and when he comes, he's going to wipe away the tears of every person from their face. That's showing God's comforting his people, removing grief from our lives. And Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, depicts this this way. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember, we talked about this last week, when God will burn away the current heaven and earth, and he will remake it. And so this is what John sees in Revelation 21. He sees a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Again, as we talked last week. 
and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as her bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Again, picture Isaiah. This is what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 25. He sees this going on. And look at verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, which we talked about as well. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for these things have passed away. And he said, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these things or these words are faithful and true. So here Isaiah is pointing out the removal of grief. Not only is death gone, but all grief, all sadness is going to be gone when the Lord returns. And so again, this is what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 25, verse 8. These are the promised rewards at the Lord's return for his people. The marriage supper of the Lamb, a time of celebration, the removal of the curse of death, and the removal of grief, but that's not it. Continue on in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 25. So he says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. What is he talking about here? This is the removal of all the shame of the believer. God is going to remove that shame that maybe sometimes you feel as a believer. Shame from maybe being different from everybody else. Maybe being persecuted or excluded from our culture or from certain things. Or maybe sometimes you think, man, I am always seem to be on the wrong side of our culture. Like culture is going this way and me as a believer, I tend to be going this way. And maybe you feel ashamed of that sometimes. Well, God is saying, I'm going to remove that shame because he is going to make everything right. There's going to be a time when you will no longer feel any shame because God is going to remove that from us because we, he is going to vindicate himself at his return and we will no longer feel that shame. And he tells us at the end of this verse, for the Lord has spoken, meaning these things that we've just discussed, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the removal of the curse of death, the removal of grief, and that removal of shame that maybe you sometimes feel, and as a believer, we've all felt it, those things are going to be gone because God says so. These things will happen. Isaiah concludes this section by saying, hey, these things are going to happen. This is gospel truth because the Lord has spoken. This is the Lord's plan. The Lord said it's going to happen, and it will happen. This is reiterated in the verses that I just read in chapter 21, verse 5 of Revelation. Remember, after he said all these things, look at what he says, if you still have your finger there, in Revelation 21, verse 5. After he talked about wiping away all the tears, the abolition of death and grief, what did the Spirit say to the Apostle John? It says, and he who sits on the throne, well, actually, this is God. He who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write, write these down, for these words are what? Faithful and true. He wanted John to record these 
for the people that he was writing to, to bring them comfort. If you remember at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, John was writing to a persecuted church, the seven churches scattered in Asia Minor because they were suffering persecution. So he wrote Revelation to encourage them that, you know what, we're going to go through hard times, but there's going to be victory when you wait upon the Lord. He's reminded them of this. Write these things down because we need to be reminded that these things are true. Just like Isaiah is saying, these things are true, people. The Lord has spoken. They're going to happen. And so look at verses 9 as we look at the last section of our text this morning. Verses 9 through 12, Isaiah describes the believer's response. Remember I, I said at the beginning, Isaiah is not only represents God to the people, but here he's representing the people to God. And in verse 9, you see that, and it says, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we've waited for. This is the Lord whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So Isaiah is speaking for the people that when all these things happen, the believer's sort of song of vindication is going to be, this is what we have been waiting for. Right? How many times do you sit in church and you hear a message like, oh, I can't wait till that happens. God's the deliverer, the provider. I can't wait till that happens. And you're waiting and you're waiting and it doesn't happen. Isaiah's saying, this is finally going to happen. And when it does, you're going to be like, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I was waiting for. That's the picture that he's painting here. He says, this is the God whom we've waited for. This is the God whom the pastors have been speaking about all my life. It's finally happened. That's the picture that we see right here. And he's saying, because that, because this is the God who you've been waiting for, what should you do? He says, let us rejoice, for God has come. God has delivered all the things that he has promised. And so that's what you see going on in verse 9. And then in verses 10 through 12, Isaiah is just talking about how God, the one that they've waited for, is going to save completely, and he's going to save permanently. That's why he says, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. It's a picture of God's final judgment resting here and no longer moving it's not a temporal thing it's a permanent thing and it's going to happen completely the god that they've waited for has finally come and he's accomplished all that he has said he was going to do final vindication so the waiting of the church vindicates your faith right because you've waited waited and proved and demonstrated that you believe god because you've waited and it demonstrates the sovereignty of God, that, hey, God truly did what he said he was going to do, and we proved it by waiting for him, and he did it. And so this is what Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah 25. So the question for us, as maybe you've already seen, is how, how should we reply to these truths? Because all these things are true. Again, those four things that I pointed out at the Lord's return, right? God is going to... Bring his presence with us, and we're going to celebrate at the marriage supper of the land. The removal of the curse of death is going to be gone. Death will no longer exist. The removal of grief will happen as well. There will no longer be any sadness or sickness or dying or disease, all those things that cause us grief. And that shame, where that you might be in the minority, or I'm serving God and everyone else is celebrating and doing what they want to, and you may feel like you have a, maybe like handcuffs on you, so to speak. All that shame is going to be removed and it's going to be vindicated when the Lord returns. How do you respond to these things? Well, they're going to be the same way that Isaiah is telling his people to respond. And that first one is this. 
since these things are true and the Lord has spoken these things, we as a people should live a life of praise. We should be exalting God, boasting in the Lord for what he, who He is and what He has done and what He does and how He does things. That's what when we worship God, we're praising God. Think of the lyrics that you sing when you worship. You're exalting God for who He is and what He does. And you give thanks to God for who He is and what He has done. So we're praising the Lord in advance for what's going to happen in the future. Again, we might lose battles here and there as a church and as individual believers, but at the end, again, we have the book of Revelation where we see the end of the world, and even here, Isaiah 25, these things are awaiting for us. We might lose wars, but we don't lose, I mean, we might lose battles, but we don't lose the war. It's like seeing the end of, you know, like a pre-recorded baseball game. You already know the outcome, but you watch each inning, you see your team losing, it's going up and down, up and down, but you know in the end, they won. That's what we're seeing here. We have that played out. God has already planned his redemptive, he's already showing us his redemptive plan. This is what Isaiah is telling us. So we can praise God even in the midst of hard times. And like I started out this morning with the sermon, the other thing that we need to do is to wait on God for our salvation. And this is the hardest thing to do. How do we wait for God to return? What should we be doing? We always feel like we need to be doing something, right? Even while we're waiting. Turn with me to Psalm 37. There's a lot of verses we could talk about. I mean, waiting on the Lord can be a sermon in itself. But I really like this one for this morning's message. Psalm 37, starting in verse 7, in verses 7 through 9, I'm just going to, I think, highlight a couple things about waiting on the Lord and what that means. So waiting on God for your salvation means this. So look at what the psalmist wrote. He says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. I think this encapsulates what Isaiah has been telling us in Isaiah 25. But what does it mean to wait for the Lord? Well, Right at the very beginning, he says, rest in the Lord. And that word rest means to be silent or to be still. Right? As I mentioned, if you're waiting for something to happen, again, if you're waiting at the restaurant, you're supposed to just wait, you know, again, not bugging the waitress or the hostess. That's not going to get you into the, the restaurant quicker. Rest, wait, be silent, be still, right? That's what we mean when we tell our kids, you just wait, wait for us. You're saying, be silent. Be still. Rest. As believers, it's hard to do that, right? When we're supposed to just wait on the Lord, you're like, well, I want to help the Lord out here. Maybe if I pray more, I pray louder, I pray in King James English, the Lord's going to answer, right? The Lord's just saying, no, rest, be silent, be still. Like, don't get antsy. Don't get fidgety like you have to do something and help the Lord out with his plan of salvation there's nothing we can do to speed up for example the second coming of the Lord that day is already planned out there's nothing we can do we just need to rest and wait on the Lord for that let the Lord's plan unfold we cannot usher it in rest in the Lord wait on him that's what we're called to do
But in the midst of waiting, this is, I think, where all of us kind of get frustrated. He says, don't fret because of him who prospers in his way. The second thing is don't let the success of unbelievers get you down, right? We're here waiting on the Lord to do what he's, you know, something that he's promised is going to happen. And then we see other people prospering, and they're not following the Lord. They're just doing whatever they want. And it looks like they're having a grand old time. They're being blessed, and I'm not, and I'm the one being faithful to God. Right? And so he's saying, don't fret. Look at, he continues on from, in verse 8, he says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't get mad. Don't get frustrated. It only leads to evil doing, he says in verse 8 in the psalmist. Don't fret, it only leads to evil doing, right? You start to wander from the path of God and start doing things your way. He says, for, and then he reminds us, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Just wait on the Lord. God has something in store for the church. Don't fret. Again, what happens is we're waiting on God and we see other things happening and then we go and do our own thing and then we stumble and bumble and end up coming back to God. And have, he says, just wait again. And you wait and, you know, it seems like it prolongs all that God is doing in our lives. Don't let the success of unbelievers get you down. Remember that our redemption is coming and it's going to be glorious. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 9 excuse me, chapter 8, verse 18, Romans 8, 18. In Paul talking about suffering, he says this, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All that I talked about here in Isaiah chapter 25, all those things that are coming, he's saying, you know what? The suffering that any of us suffer right now, no matter how bad you think it is, it is not going to compare to what God has for us but we have to just remember that sometimes we forget that right we, we forget about that you're like i want that now it's like no it's coming this isn't our world we're aliens we're strangers in this world we have something so much greater if we would just wait on it just wait on it and i know that's not easy so how should we live and reply to these truths number one live a life of praise Number two, wait on God for your salvation. And waiting means resting patiently in the Lord and don't letting the success of unbelievers get you down. And I'm going to add a third one that's not going to come up here. We need to encourage one another with this truth. Just like Isaiah, just like John in Revelation wrote these things down to encourage those who are suffering. The Apostle Paul tells us, I left this verse out intentionally in 1 Corinthians 15, the very last verse, after he talks about death being done away with, the resurrection of the believer, verse 58 has a, a word of exhortation. He says, because of all these things, in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, therefore, meaning since death is going to be destroyed and you are going to have a resurrected body in the future, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Keep serving God is actually the point. We need to remind us that we need to keep serving God, that all that we're doing is not in vain. It might not look like you're succeeding and prospering in life. Be rewarded for following God. But Paul reminds us 
to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. God will reward his people. Again, Psalm 37 tells us that we will inherit all that God has for us. The righteous will inherit it. So again, how to reply to these? Live a life of praise. Wait on the Lord. Keep serving God and encouraging one another to do so as we wait for the return of our King. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that faithful men wrote these things down and you have kept it pure for us so that we could read it. We could be encouraged because you knew that your church in the future would suffer many things. We would go through many things and we would need a constant reminder, Lord God, of all that awaits us, all that awaits those who trust in you and wait on you for your return. So I pray, Lord God, that you would help each and every one of us who are your sons and daughters, that you would help us to live a life of praise, that you would help us, Lord God, not to get unsettled when things don't go our way, but that we would rest and wait in you. And again, Lord, that we would encourage one another and continue to follow after you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.